Today's episode is brought to you by North Texas Honda Dealers. North Texas Honda Dealers, they're here to help. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome to the Republic of Football. I'm your host, Shahan J. Raja, the college football insider at Dave Campbell's Texas Football. You can find all my work at texfootball.com. You can obviously subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, like us on Facebook, Dave Campbell's Texas Football. Follow us on Twitter at DCTF. Follow us on Instagram, Dave Cam- at Dave Campbell's. You can find us everywhere. Make sure to pick up the new Texas football recruiting magazine, which will be hitting bookshelves very, very soon. You can also pre-order it online. We're very excited for that one to come out. But first, we've got a great show for you. We've got the voice of the tech- Utah State Aggies. Yes, we've got Scott Gerard on the show. He's going to talk to us extensively about uh, new Texas Tech head coach Matt Wells. Actually, I, I didn't know this. Uh, Scott Gerard actually went to college with Matt Wells. He was at the school at the same time. They both went to Utah State University. He could not stop saying enough nice things about Matt Wells. So if you are at all concerned, we will talk to Scott real soon, and he will help assuage your fears just a little bit if you're a Texas Tech fan. But first, we have to talk about the Big 12 championship game. Obviously, Texas falls just short against Oklahoma. 39-27 to is the final. But Texas really, they played their hearts out. And ultimately, Kyler Murray is the best player in the nation, and I think he should be the Heisman Trophy winner. And that ultimately ended up being the difference. But, you know, Texas played really, really well. They took a 14-6 lead early in this game, 11 minutes into, uh, into the second quarter. And they were moving the ball at will, getting some stops, and through the entire first half, really, up until sort of the last couple minutes of the fr- of the second quarter, Texas was managing to out-physical Oklahoma to get some stops, to make Kyler Murray very uncomfortable. Uh, you know, and I think that that really bowed itself out. You know, if you, if you kind of look at the drive charts, uh, look, you got a field goal, field goal, punt to start the game. Unfortunately, after that, then they go touchdown, 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 punt, field goal, then then a fumble, but then touchdown at a game. So they're able to out-physical them early. They're able to put some points on the board with touchdown drives on the first two drives of the game, uh, drives that last three and two and a half minutes. It was an impressive start to this game. I mean, Texas really looked like they were going to go out there and win this game. <laughs> you know, it, it was really a couple of mistakes down the stretch that ended up costing them the game. Uh, obviously, again, allowing those touchdowns to end the first half and really make things a little too interesting. And Sam Ellinger, (laughs) he does not like Oklahoma. And and Sam takes this responsibility of being the Texas quarterback very, very seriously. He throws for 349 yards, two touchdowns, adds another two touchdowns on the ground. His second, you know, he had a five touchdown game in, in the Red River rivalry earlier in the year. He puts up a four touchdown performance, nearly 400 total yards in this game. But it's just not quite enough. It's not his fault. I mean, again, (laughs) Sam was once again one of the best players on the field. But Kyler Murray, like I mentioned, 379 passing yards, three touchdowns. Look, I I think that we have to start talking about him as one of the better single-year college players that we've seen in a little while. I mean, obviously Cam Newton's always going to be on another level. And Kyler, you know, maybe that's cheating a little bit because he played at Texas A&M, so he's not a true sort of one-year player. But Kyler Murray, you just look at his numbers, and he's doing now at Oklahoma almost exactly the same thing he did in high school. But, you know, not to to talk about Kyler Murray too, too much. Again, I I think on Saturday he's going to be the one walking home with the Heisman Trophy. But Texas is so close. 
And I think that after this game, that was the real takeaway. Just talking to all the players, talking to Sam Ellinger, talking to uh, Gary Johnson we got a chance to talk to, um, you know, Andrew Beck. They just know how close they are to, to playing at a really high level, to being able to take home a Big 12 championship. This is a program that hasn't been in the Big 12 championship game since 2009 and hasn't played for a Big 12 championship since 2013 in the sort of pseudo de facto Big 12 championship game against Baylor, a game that they lost by 20 points. This is a big step for the program. I actually talked about it in an article earlier this week, but it's pretty rare. Other, you know, let's say let's take Lincoln Riley out of this, right? You know, Lincoln Riley obviously <laughs> is a unique coach who took over at a unique situation at Oklahoma where he had a team that was pretty much fully formed. But other than that, you look at the runners-up in the Big 12 and, and the Big 12 champions, it's coaches who have been with their schools for a long, long time. In fact, I think I was looking at the numbers, and uh, you know, the last guy who was the runner-up in the Big 12, and I, I kind of went off of AP rankings because, you know, the North-South division, whatever, you know, that kind of messed things up, but Nebraska in 2009 was the last time that a second-year head coach managed to lead their team to a uh, Big 12 runner-up spot, and that was Bo Pelini. Since then, in 2010, Mike Gundy was the next youngest. He had only been with his program for six years as the head coach, and he had been there for four years before under Les Miles as the offensive coordinator. And, and then after that, it's a whole bunch of coaches who have been there a long time. You know, we're talking Bob Stoops, we're talking Gary Patterson, we're talking Bill Snyder. I, I want to say that I calculated, and, and it ended up being that the runners-up in the Big 12 since 2010 had spent like an average of 14 years with their program. And Tom Herman's here in his second year, two years after missing the big uh, the uh, bowl game, <laughs> not the Big 12 championship game, just missing a bowl game. They were 5-7 and seven in two consecutive years. To already have them back in the Big 12 championship game really is an impressive feat. And I know that they sort of backed their way into it because West Virginia lost some pretty bad games down the stretch. I mean, this game probably should have been Oklahoma versus West Virginia. But Texas managed to take care of business. They managed to keep their eye on the goal. They managed to go 4-2 and two against ranked teams this season with the two losses being this game and a one-point loss at the very last second against a very good West Virginia team that unfortunately choked down the stretch. Texas is heading somewhere. I mean, I am never going to be the one who says Texas is back, who exclaims anything, because I have no idea what that phrase even means. But Texas is playing at a very high level right now, and I think that we're going to have to take notice these next couple of years. I think we're going to have to take notice, and I think that Texas, depending on how much they return next year, and the two names that I really need to keep an eye on are wide receivers Colin Johnson and Lil Jordan Humphrey. But if, if one of those guys comes back, let's say, and, and it's sure, it sure after the game sounded like Humphrey was pretty serious about thinking that he might leave. But if Colin Johnson comes back or little Humphrey, uh, little Jordan Humphrey comes back, you know Texas is going to be a really good team next year. They're going to be a team that can legitimately win the Big Twelve, and and Oklahoma is going to be playing without Kyler Murray. We don't know what they're going to do at quarterback right now, so it's going to be a lot. And uh, and I think Texas is in a good spot. And again, teams don't usually make it to the Big Twelve championship game with young coaches. Tom Herman has been able to do that at Texas, and now, you know, the Big 12 is going to be a whole lot better next year and the year after that, so it's going to be time for him to prove that he can not just make it to the game, not just back into the game, but really own the conference and make it into that game. Moving on, we actually got some uh, interesting data. <laughs> oh, God, that already sounds boring, doesn't it? No, I promise, this is really interesting. USA Today re released their list of assistant coach salaries, and 
I think it helps tell an interesting story about where a lot of these programs are right now and, and where they aspire to be. And I, I just want to preface by saying that this only includes public schools because private schools are not required to release information. So we don't have info for all of the Baylor, TCU, Rice, or SMU coaches, but just looking at the eight other public programs, you get a lot of interesting indicators. So there were 105 programs that, uh, that had their information publicly released. Out of those 105 programs, Texas A&M was number three. Number three. I mean, that's that's impressive. That's really, really impressive. Texas A&M, you know, obviously they made a lot of noise by spending $75 million on bringing on Jimbo Fisher. But, you know, when you go into those meetings, you can't just say, hey, here's $75 million. You know, you have to tell them, here's how you're going to be able to be successful. And the answer is by giving him the ability to go out and hire any assistant coach he wanted. In fact, the only coaches in all of college football – that uh, or the only programs in all of college football that have a higher assistant salary pool than Texas A&M, Ohio State at number one, the only program in the country with $3 million assistance, which is insane. And then second, uh, you have Clemson, which is a program that's known for having a gigantic uh, assistant salary pool that's known for paying a lot for their assistant coaches. So Dabo can kind of just focus on administrative stuff and you have assistants basically running uh, the scheme parts of that program. Texas A&M's at number three. They they have a $6.789 million assistant salary pool, and they also have five of the top ten paid assistant coaches in the state of Texas. Not only defensive coordinator Mike Elko, $1.8 million, the top overall paid assistant in the state of Texas, they actually have five of the top ten. Daryl Dickey's at 800000 Jim Turner's at 600000 Damian Craig's at 600000 Elijah Robinson's at 575000 This is a program that's willing to go out there and spend to go and get the guys that they want. That's what you have to do if you're Texas A&M. You know, we, we talk about, oh, you know, you can upgrade your facilities, and A&M has some of the best facilities in all of college football. You can go and spend, go get your head coach. You know, you paid $75 million to get one of the few guys in college football who's won a national championship. And then... To see them go out and spend like this on assistant coaches, that just shows the sort of dedication that they have right now to going out and trying to win right away. You know, this is this is big boy football. They have the highest assistant coach pool in the entire SEC. That's serious. And and you look at them compared to Texas, and Texas, obviously. <laughs> Texas does not play around with assistant coaches either. They paid just under $6 million, number eight in the nation, and best in the Big 12. And, you know, we talked about all those guys at Texas A&M. Todd Orlando's within $90,000 of Mike Elko, and Orlando's obviously one of the best defensive coordinators in the country. Uh, Tim Beck is at $800,000. Herb Hands at $650,000. So you got three of the top ten coming from the University of Texas. You know, but I don't just want to talk about Texas and Texas A&M. Uh, you know, there were a couple of other schools that really jumped out on this list to me. Uh, one is Houston, which their number right now, they're number 56 with a $2.1 million salary pool. But that's probably going to go up because they just signed offense coordinator Kendall Bryles to an extension that'll pay him a, a reported $700,000 a year. That's a big jump for him. And they actually also fired defense coordinator Mark D'Onofrio, so they're going to have to make a hire there, maybe shell out some more money on the defensive side of the ball. But one of the schools that really jumped out at me was North Texas. North Texas is at $1.7 million, number 64 out of 105 teams. Like I mentioned, this only includes public schools. This doesn't include private schools. Um, and, you know, 64 sounds kind of modest, but 
North Texas leads Conference USA in assistant coach spending. They actually have a better uh, assistant coach spending than any program in the MAC as well, and they're within ten thousand dollars of being the highest paying staff in the Sun Belt as well. So they they are second place out of those three conferences. And you know, at this point, sort of the American and the Mountain West have a little bit more money to work with. So it's not necessarily a huge shock that they're sort of middle of the pack there too, but. I mean, you look at the numbers, and actually, you know, I, I can go down the list. I have it pulled up. You know, UNT, like I mentioned, they are number 64 on the list. Uh, the highest-ranking group of five schools is Memphis at number 52. So they're within a million of Memphis, because Memphis has the highest-paying group of five uh, assistant pool in the country, and they're at 2.6 million. And like I mentioned, the American and the Mountain West have a little bit more money to work with right now just because of revenue numbers. But UNT is serious about this. You know, I've given a lot of, I think that I don't give enough credit to athletic director Ren Baker. You know, in the past couple of months and the last year or so, they've raised so much money. They've really used Seth Luttrell to be able to be sort of a face of this program, to be a unifying force of this program. And Ren Baker's gone out there and capitalized. He's picked up some of the biggest donations in the history of North Texas football. They've got some incredible facilities planned. You know, we've heard about an indoor practice facility, a football team-specific facility, some of the biggest donations, like we mentioned, in the history of the program. And, again, the the fact that they're willing to go out there, pay a decent amount of money for defensive coordinator Troy Reffitt, pay a whole lot of money for offensive coordinator Graham Harrell. But, you know, the thing that really impresses me is sort of the balance that they have as well. You know, out of their 10 assistant coaches, nine of them are six-digit assistants. You know, compare that to Texas State, which is last in the state. They only have five six-digit assistants. And actually, uh, North Texas, you know, the only guy who makes fewer than $100,000 on their staff is running backs coach Tashard Choice, a former NFL running back, so he's got a little money in his back pocket. And he's also the newest coach on staff. He was added as the 10th assistant as a running backs coach. So North Texas really takes care of their coaches. That's That's for sure. And... You know, there's been a lot of talk right now about Seth Luttrell and him maybe leaving and taking another job. And, you know, there might be something to that. Uh, Kansas State is really the one that we keep hearing about right now, that he's their top choice. We haven't heard any official news at this point, of course, whether he's going to stay or leave. You know, I mean, selfishly, obviously, he'd want him to stay because uh, North Texas is such a good program under Seth Luttrell. And we want to see Mason Fine get to experience the last season with Seth Luttrell there. But, you know, if he were to leave... I think that we have to remember that this is a better job than, than it was when Seth Luttrell took over. Not just on the field, where you have, again, the leading pastor in the history of the program coming back, but off the field in terms of facilities, in terms of work, in terms of fan support, in terms of uh, the amount of money and revenue that you're able to put into your assistance. This is a good job, you know, and, and I hope it's not a job. I hope that Seth Luttrell comes back. But North Texas is a good program right now, and they want to compete with everybody, not just in the Conference USA, but with everybody in the group of five. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of months, but North Texas is going to be in a good spot regardless. The one program that really, really jumped off this list to me, though, uh, in addition to those ones, Texas State. Now, like we mentioned, Texas State's bringing a new head coach, Jake Spavadol. Uh Larry Tice, the athletic director, told me that they do plan to increase the assistant coach budget, so hopefully it's not going to be here. But right now, it's at $979,920, which ranks the 98th in the country out of 105. 98th! You know, this isn't just you know near the bottom of the state. This isn't just the bottom of Conference USA. This is one of the worst in all of the sport. I mean, the teams behind them, Central Michigan, 
ULM, Akron, Bowling Green, UMass, New Mexico State, Kent State. That's not really the sort of list that you want to be a part of. You know, they're one of the few programs, only 10 uh, in terms of reported schools, of course, in all of college football to have an assistant salary uh, assistant salary pool under a million dollars. I mean, think about it. You know, we have two coaches in the state right now in, in Todd Orlando and Mike Elka who make nearly double what every Texas State assistant coach combined makes. It's hard to win like that when you can't have your guys, when you can't make good hires. Uh, and, and I think they did manage to make some good hires, you know, both with Spavadol and under Everett Withers. I think Chris Woods was a great hire. But it just puts you in a very tough spot when, you know, you can't necessarily get your first choice. And if you do, maybe you have to give up on your top uh, wide receiver's choice or your top defensive line choice. I think that Texas State has put their coaches in a tough position before. And, you know, I, I was talking to Larry Tice last week, actually, on Friday when they introduced Jake Spavadol at the introductory press conference. And he said, look, we're willing to do whatever it takes. We're willing to go out there and help him in any way that we know we can. And since then, the word is they've gotten Bob Stitt as offensive coordinator. He's not necessarily a big name, but this is going to be a guy that we'll hopefully get to tell you a little bit more about in the coming weeks. He's, he's a big-time offensive mind. And defensively, they've gone out and gotten his brother, Zach Spavadol, who was linebackers coach and co-defensive coordinator at Texas Tech this past year before Cliff Kingsbury was fired. So they have made two hires that I think Jake Spavadol wanted to make. Now it's going to be interesting to see what ends up happening with the rest of that staff whether he's able to make the sort of hires he wants to make, and whether Larry Tice is really able to provide for him from a financial perspective. Look, again, I think that you can really tell when it comes to these programs what they want and what they think their ceiling is based on how much they're willing to spend on the assistance. You know, Texas A&M's number three. They want to be one of the elite programs. Texas Tech is top ten. They want to be an elite program. Houston's near the top of the group of five. North Texas is near the top of the group of five. Texas Tech is not. And again, this is their last staff. We'll see what they do with this new incoming staff, and hopefully we'll have that those numbers relatively soon. But then UTSA, they're kind of middle of the pack to the bottom of the pack of Conference USA. Same with UTEP. And Texas State is right at the bottom of the state of Texas, and I believe right at the bottom of Conference USA too. Look, they have to make a decision. If they want this to work, if they want to be good at football, if they want to compete in football, they have to make these investments. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to say, but they have to do it. It's going to be interesting to see what they do. Again, Jake Spavadol is a good coach. He's coached good offenses before, and he's coached good offenses in the state of Texas. But that assistant budget that they had last year was very troublesome, and they're going to have to do better if they want to win football games. Anyway, let's go ahead and get to our guest. We've got Scott Gerard on the show. Scott is the voice of the Utah State Aggies. He knows Matt Wells as well as anybody in the media. And again, like I mentioned, if you're a Texas Tech fan and you're at all worried about this hire, you got to listen to this. I, I think this is some really good stuff. Anyway, we'll be right back with you after the break, and then we'll break down the other piece of news from the week. We've got some bowl games to talk about, so stick around. We'll be right back. We're joined now by Scott Gerard. Scott is the play-by-play voice for Utah State Athletics. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It must be a little weird around there now with uh, with Coach Wells gone, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a little different. Uh, you know, it's funny. I I, uh, I do play-by-play for the basketball as well. And at the end of last year, uh, they let their coach go. And that had a, certainly a different vibe to this one where Coach Wells ends up leaving and uh, taking another job. So 
So we went through a basketball firing and then uh, and then picking up a new football coach via him leaving for another program. So it's nothing new. It's just kind of a different way it came about. <laughs> right, right. Things are always interesting, I'm sure. Well, yeah. Scott, you know, to start off, um, you know, what what do Texas Tech fans need to know about Coach Wells now that he's obviously the new coach of their program? Coach Wells is, and, and I've got, I've known him. In fact, I, I, I knew him a little bit. He and I were students at the same time at Utah State. Uh, and I was working, you know, via, you know, various student, uh, you know, paper and radio and stuff like that. So I was around him a little bit then as a player and then uh, came back as the play-by-play voice as the head coach. And it's, I've known him for a long time. He's a really, he's a very passionate, very direct, very honest person. And he's, he's really fun to interview. He'll, he'll bark at you a little bit if it's not a good question. Uh, he's very direct. He's always coaching. He'll coach you as a broadcaster. He'll coach uh, you as a writer if you're writing about his team. He's, he's really fun to be around. He's got a really sharp sense of humor. Um, if you can, if you got thick skin, he'll come after you a little bit, and it's all in good fun. He's a really, really good human being. But the stuff he said in his press conference, and I watched – watch his press conference, the love he has for his players. There's a lot of coaches that say that, but sometimes it comes across disingenuous. Uh, it's not with Coach Wells. He is 100% all about developing and and uh, and producing not just good players, but good human beings. And sure, there's going to be some guys that slip through the cracks a little bit, but he is 100% passionate about his players. There was a situation uh, about three years ago, where a good chunk of his defensive linemen were all stuck in a uh, in a vehicle that got into a really ugly, ugly car accident in the middle of summer, and he spent a lot of nights inside hospital rooms next to those players, getting them getting them back out and healthy. And he didn't care about them as as football players; he cared about them as human beings, and getting them back to where they needed to be. He's a really good guy. He's fun to be around. Uh, but he's all business, and uh, I think you'll enjoy him. You, you know, what would you say that Coach Wells' coaching style is like, uh, you know, both in terms of scheme and style offensively and defensively, but also in terms of uh, personality? Well, it, those are really good questions. First off, we'll go from a scheme standpoint. Uh, you, you know, you have Coach Yost who kind of helped with the offense, but Coach Yost wasn't necessarily different from what Matt Wells was doing when he had, uh, when he took on more of the uh, more of the work as as calling plays and things along those lines. He wants it up tempo. He wants it fast. Uh, he wants to uh, get the ball down the field. He wants scoring drives of less than two minutes. Uh, that one stat that they will not care about one bit is time of possession. In fact, they want to be dead last in the country in time of possession because that means they're scoring quickly and scoring often. And so that, that is who they are offensively. Now, defensively, uh, um, and, and it, it kind of falls in line with what we've done here at Utah State for a long time, heavy, heavy blitzing. They love to get after the quarterback. Uh, if there's a good edge rusher in the state of Texas in high school right now, he needs to be looking at this program because they, w- he, they will do everything they can to get sacks from the outside. They love to blitz. It's an exciting defense to play in. Um, as a person – he really challenges players. And at first, uh, just to kind of take you back, because I'm sure you're all very interested in the history of Utah State football, uh, but, but Gary Anderson was the guy that really turned things around here at Utah State. 
before Gary Anderson, it was awful. I mean, football at Utah State was as bad as any program in the country. And Gary Anderson got this thing turned around, but he was a very player. Uh, he was a player's coach. Players really loved him, and, and they, there was kind of a unique bond there. Matt Wells comes in, and Matt still obviously really cares about his players, but he's blunt. He doesn't, you know, he's not, he's not going to sugarcoat anything. He's going to tell you exactly what's on his mind. And there was about a year or two transition where I think the players had a hard time trying to, trying to figure out a new style of coaching. But once they figured it out and once they bought in, they were all in, and, and this team took off again. So he's very direct. He's very blunt. He's going to tell you exactly what he thinks of you and your performance. Some kids can handle it, and some kids and the kids that can't handle it are going to be better for it. Uh, there may be some kids, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if, you know, after spring ball or maybe early fall camp that you guys see some transfers because, and I don't know Cliff Kingsbury at all. I don't know his style of coaching, but Coach Wells is hard. He's not an easy coach to play for. But if you can stick it out, you're going to be better for it. So it wouldn't surprise me if you see some transition with some early players because, frankly, it's not an easy coach to play for. But but you're going to win a lot, and you're going to be highly successful when you do. And and at the end of the day, you're going to go back to him and say, thank you for thank you for coaching me up the way that you did. How do you think Coach Wells fits both into Lubbock and both at, at Texas Tech? You know, obviously Utah State's not necessarily in the most fertile recruiting area per se. Uh, you know, Lubbock also a little bit isolated from DFW, from Houston. How do you think he fits in culturally there? And do you think uh, that his experience being at Utah State will help him in that way at Texas Tech? Well, I think so. Uh, you know, personally, I've never been to Lubbock. I, I don't know the geography of Texas very well, but but Logan, Utah, there's Salt Lake City, and then there where you know the University of Utah is, and then about 30 miles to the south is Provo, and it's kind of just one big city. There's not a lot of separation as far as, and so it just feels like a huge metropolitan area. Well, I mean, by Utah standards, it's a huge metropolitan area, but uh, and that's you know that's where you know. That, that's kind of the hub of Utah. And then you go about an hour and a half north of Salt Lake City, and then you get to Logan, Utah. It's isolated. Uh, it's, it's a smaller city. Uh, the whole valley probably has about eighty or 90,000 people in it, so there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of media attention. You got one newspaper, one radio state, you know. And so, so the, if, if it's not going well, the criticism isn't really intense. Now, I don't know what it's going to be like for Coach Wells if – what you know if if they struggle and there's a lot of people barreling down on him, I assume he'll handle it just fine. But that'll be interesting because I mean that's that's big boy football there. That's that's Big Twelve football and Big Twelve scrutiny and and I think uh, Coach Wells is more than willing and more than able to handle that pressure. But it'll be interesting to see how that how, how that plays out. I think uh, a lot of Texas Tech fans looking at Coach Wells' record. They couldn't help but notice that three and nine season. Yeah, what yep. exactly happened there, and how was Coach Wells able to build up from it? Well, that was uh, that was the year before I took over as play-by-play, and I, I live down in Salt Lake, and I I do a daily show here, so that's the majority of my time is spent here in Salt Lake. So I was a little away from the team, but but being able to be, you know, somewhat connected and knowing what happened there, there was a huge assistant coach turnover uh, over over the first three years. In fact. Only once in, in his coaching career did he have the same offensive coordinator for back-to-back years. So there was always huge turnover. Uh, and then because of that, in 2015, they lost pretty much all of their assistant coaching staff. His brother, Luke, 
and about one other coach was about all that was left, and he had to rehire a new staff right in the middle of recruiting. And they essentially, uh, you know, Coach Wells won't say this, but I'll say it, they lost a recruiting class. Uh, they really missed out on a lot of guys because of the transition, and there was uh, there was a missed class in there, and, and it bit them in the butt in a bad way. Now, they were still competitive. They lost a lot of close games that year, but it was what it was. It, it was a 3-9 and nine season. They don't shy away from it. They didn't, they, you know, they, they didn't they didn't say that it was anybody's fault but their own. They owned it. And then the next year they doubled their win total, should have won the bowl game, uh, and had a, a bunch of close losses in, uh, in 2017. And then this year it, it finally clicked. And I give them a lot of credit for being able to recruit at a high level after a 3-9 and nine season because I talked to him after I got the play-by-play job, and he said, yeah, we went 3-9, and nine, but all my assistant coaches are back, and we just had our best recruiting class. So I actually give a lot of credit for being able to recruit at such a high level, and now those guys are turning into all Mountain West players uh, at the end of this year because he was able to identify his problems, fix it, and uh, and get this thing back on track. I know that even just in the short amount of time they've been there that uh, Coach David Yost has already become sort of a, a favorite in Lubbock. What can you tell us about Coach Yost, and what can you tell us about uh, you know what he brings to this table offensively? So he's uh, he's an interesting cat because you look at him and you're thinking you know Spicoli from Fast Times at Richmond High or you know <laughs> what you know what exactly you know or or Dumb and Dumber, uh, but but you know there's a method to his madness and he wants recruits to remember him. He wants people he wants to leave an impression, and if you spend ten minutes with him and, and they were always kind enough before the night before a game where. Uh, myself and our color analysts were able to sit down and just go over the game plan completely off the record. And his football IQ is just phenomenal. And I'll say this, and I mean this in no disrespect, but you look at who the offensive coordinator was before him, and uh, it was Josh Heifel, you know, and Josh is doing great things in Central Florida. But in my opinion, Josh Heifel is an offensive coordinator as a play calling, doesn't hold a candle to Coach Yost. And and they, he was able to figure out what works in the Mountain West, what we can get away with, how can we attack these defenses. And he brought in a style of go fast, go hard, get a playoff every nine seconds, never allow a defense to either uh, to adjust to what you're doing because they're just too busy trying to get back to the line of scrimmage. They want defenses on their heels for an entire game. And, and it worked. And he, and he recruits to it. I know several kids that he's recruited that absolutely love the guy. He's, he's a fun interview. He's one of those guys you'll ask one question to, and he'll talk for 20 minutes. So uh, he's, he's a great personality. He's a great coach, and he's going to do good things there in Lubbock. Uh, you know, obviously under Cliff Kingsbury, Texas Tech ran a little bit more of a traditional air raid. Um, yeah. What exactly are, would you consider to be the primary differences between what Coach Yost is going to run and what Coach Kingsbury ran? Well, you know, you look at – what what they've done here at Utah State, and you think up tempo offense, you think throw the ball. They're very balanced. Uh, they've got a they've got a kid who is about you know sixty yards away from being a thousand yard rusher, and another kid who's right on his heels at about an eight hundred yard rusher. So they're going to rush for well over twenty five twenty six hundred yards uh, before this. Uh, you know, if you add up everybody else's rushing total, they will emphasize the run. They will run the football and. You're going to hear Coach Wells say this a bunch of times where he says, we want to run the football when we want to run it, meaning we want to control the tempo. It's, it's not an organization that just focuses solely on throwing the football. They'll want to run plays fast. They want to, they want to get up and down the field. 
but they do want to run the football and they are very balanced for a good chunk of the year. They were, they were almost 50, 50 run pass. It wasn't intentional. It's just kind of how it played out. But, but I would look at a very heavy emphasis on the run game. It's not necessarily throwing the ball 60 or 70 times a game. I know that uh, just talking to people around Lubbock, the biggest thing that I think fans are worried about is hiring an outsider from Texas. You know, there's all this talk yeah, about yep. Texas ties. You know, that's one of the reasons why Cliff Kingsbury, people felt like was a great hire at the time. How confident are you that Matt Wells is going to be able to build those relationships and bring people on staff also uh, to help build those relationships from a recruiting perspective? You know, and that's, I get it. We're the same way here in the state of Utah. Because we want, you know, there's a lot of people hoping that Gary Anderson takes the job at Utah State because he's a Utah State guy. Like, you want to have one of your own lead your university. And that makes total sense. That, that's, that, you know, that's, you want, you want one of your guys to lead your team. But I'll say this, like, you've watched the press conference. I don't think it's going to take a long time for Texas Tech to embrace Matt Wells and this coaching staff as one of their own. Like, he will... He will do everything he can to help out in the community. He'll he'll show up at every function. If there's a Kiwanis Club, you know, co-ed softball game that invites him, he'll be there. If there's a an interview request, I've never once, and this was before I was the play-by-play guy, you know, I hosted, as I mentioned, I hosted a show. I would text him and say, hey, you know what, I got an open segment. You want to hop on? Boom. He'd be like, let's roll. It, it, he'll never turn down an interview request. He'll never turn down an opportunity to get in the community. He will do everything because, granted, he's very active on social media, too. There's a lot of coaches in college football that, you know, will, will set up a Twitter account and then hand it off to a GA and say, hey, run this. Uh, Matt Wells runs his own Twitter account, and he's very, very keenly aware about what people say. And I saw, too, that night that word got out that he got hired. I saw him get – he was getting roasted on Twitter. I mean, I saw Texas Tech fans out there that weren't happy about the hire. I guarantee, I guarantee you Matt Wells saw that. And I guarantee he's looking at that as a challenge and saying, here's a fan base that I need to win over. Their athletic director believes in me. I'm going to make these players believe in me. And I'm going to have this community believing in me. And I, it, it won't surprise me if uh, a year or two years from now, he's the talk of the town because not only is he winning games, but you're going to look at him and you're going to feel like this is a guy that's a Texas Tech guy. He wasn't a year ago, but he is now because he'll find a way to work his way into that community and be part of the crowd. Scott Gerard is the play-by-play voice for Utah State Athletics. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. No worries, guys. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks again to Scott Gerard for joining the show. I forgot to mention, by the way, his Twitter handle is at ScottyGZone. Make sure and follow him. He's an absolutely fantastic Utah State follow. Uh, again, like I mentioned, he knows Matt Wells as well as anybody. Some great stories from Scott and again, I, I'm very curious to see what Matt Wells ends up doing at Texas Tech. I think he's going to be a good fit. I think he's going to ingratiate himself into Lubbock. And, you know, I, I am curious. I am curious. It is interesting to hear that uh, that Matt Wells does pay attention to what people say online. Obviously, Texas Tech is a program that takes their football very, very seriously, as they should. And I'm curious to see whether Matt Wells uses that as motivation or whether he, you know, for lack of a better term, crumbles under the pressure. So, I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to be a good coach. I'm curious to see how Kirby Hoka handles him and how much time he gives him. But, look, I think if, if Texas Tech gives him the time, I think uh, Matt Wells is going to win a whole bunch of ball games at Texas Tech. Anyway, moving on, the other news from last week, we have some bowl games that are officially official. 
just going through them now. We've got Texas versus Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. We've got Texas A&M versus North Carolina State in the Gator Bowl, the Tax Slayer Bowl, as it used to be called. We've got, in my opinion, what might be the best bowl game of the of the entire uh, bowl season from the state of Texas. We've got the New Mexico Bowl, North Texas versus Utah State. We got the Armed Forces Bowl, Houston versus Army. We got the Texas Bowl, Baylor versus Vanderbilt, and we got the Cheez It Bowl, <laughs> the Cheez It Bowl, TCU versus Cal. Let's start with that last one, okay? I feel like a bowl called the Cheez It Bowl should be a lot more fun than what this tech, what this TCU versus Cal game is gonna be. And I'm sorry to any of my TCU friends who are listening because, uh, but this is gonna be an ugly game. TCU and Cal both averaged under 25 points per game, but also hold both of their opponents under 25 points a game. Two of the best defenses in college football and two of the worst offenses in college football. And TCU, at least earlier in the year, wasn't a terrible offense with Sean Robinson and with Michael Collins. Oh, man, the last couple of weeks, though, they have not been good. (laughs) Obviously, they've turned to Grayson Mielstein, the longtime practice squad quarterback, to take over the starting job. And it's gone pretty much as expected, except for that they won the games. <laughs> you know, the, the defense has stepped up in a big way for TCU, and that's going to be really exciting to watch from a TCU defense perspective, but offensively, going against Cal. And, and I do want to say it's very impressive how quickly Justin Wilcox has turned that program into something completely different, because I think this is only his second year. He took over for Sonny Dykes, obviously now the head coach at SMU. And he took over an air raid roster that won a whole bunch of games with Jared Goff and with Davis Webb. And he quickly turned it from that into a defensive first, hard-nosed roster. So it's going to be two coaches who are very, very similar going against each other. Gary Patterson, at this point, obviously a better offensive or defensive mind, rather. Um, But I'm really curious to see what uh, Sonny Cumbie is able to come up with. Obviously, the last two games of the year. It was the Jalen Rager show. He posted four touchdowns and wins over uh, Baylor and against Oklahoma State to make a bowl game. But will they be able to do that when Cal has a little bit of extra time to prepare for Jalen Rager? Who knows? It's going to be an ugly game. I Let's put it this way. First to seven wins. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, we're going to move on to the Texas Bowl. Baylor versus Vanderbilt. Uh, you know, Vanderbilt traditionally is known as a very hard-nosed defensive team, but that hasn't really been the case this year. You know, really this year they've more just been extremely solid offensively. Uh, you know, solid, not spectacular. Quarterback Kyle Shermer has taken a big step forward this year. He's completing about 65% of his passes. They produced a 1,000-yard rusher with Keyshawn Vaughn, an Illinois transfer who averaged 7.0 yards per carry with 10 touchdowns. So only 144 carries and reached 1,000 rushing yards. Obviously, Baylor has had some issues on defense this year, especially with the big play and especially with the big run play. So Vaughn has a bunch of long runs this year for touchdowns. Um, In fact, he has a 78-yarder, he has a 65-yarder, he's got a 63-yarder. He's got a lot of big plays. That's going to be, I think, the matchup of the day for Baylor is whether they can keep Keyshawn Vaughn under, you know, not just 100 yards, but keep him without a touchdown without a big breakaway touchdown because that's going to be backbreaking for Baylor's defense. On the other end, uh, Baylor, of course, they will be playing without Jalen Hurd, their top overall receiver, leads the team in receiving yards, leads the team, I believe, in total touchdowns or in all-purpose touchdowns. It's going to be a tough game for Baylor. 
you know, Vanderbilt's not a great team, but neither is Baylor. And between these two teams, actually, we only have two wins over bowl opponents. Baylor beat Oklahoma State. That's their only bowl win of the season. And Vanderbilt beat Middle Tennessee. So, you know, what do we know about these teams? I don't really know. The three conference wins that Vanderbilt picked up this year were not great. They were against winless Arkansas. They were against one win Ole Miss. And they were against two win uh, Tennessee. And just just to clarify, that's in uh, SEC play. Those teams only won zero, one, and two games. I don't know. It's going to be really tough. It's it's gonna be it's a tough game to forecast, especially since we don't exactly know which Baylor team is gonna show up. But I think it's gonna be a good matchup, and I think that uh, again, whichever team can get a big playoff, whichever team takes care of the football, is probably gonna be the one who wins this game. And we're gonna do a little bit more full length preview later in the year. Maybe we'll do some you know mini shows to to help preview each of these games. But moving on, we're going to go to the Armed Forces Bowl, Houston versus Army. Houston playing without their two best players, quarterback Derek King and defensive tackle Ed Oliver. Oliver, who declared for the NFL draft and will not participate in this game. Going against an option team, a, a very good option team, without your best defensive player, sure sure doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Obviously, earlier in the year, uh, Navy played against Houston, and Houston managed to pull off a victory there, but... They gave up a whole bunch of points. That's not going to happen against uh, Army, though, because Army has a fantastic defense. I want to say that Houston scored 56 points, actually, against Navy, because Navy's defense was not very good this year. They took a big step back, and let's double-check there. They scored 49. This final score was 49-36. to 36. So if Army scores 36 points, I don't think that Houston's going to win this football game. It, not because I don't think that they can score, but we saw against Oklahoma, Army can take the ball from a team. They can just hold on to it, and they can make sure that you never get the ball. If you want to know how this game's going to go, you really do just need to go back and watch that Oklahoma-Army game if you're able to do that. It was exclusively on pay-per-view, as some, some people may remember. But Houston's going to need to be able to move the ball on their own, too. They're going to need to be able to hold on to the ball. They can't just try to get some big plays and score quickly because that's just going to wear down their defense. I'm curious to kind of see what happens. Uh, you know, I mean, this could go one of two ways. Houston could manage to own the line of scrimmage. They could manage to hold on to the ball, get some big plays, and uh, keep Army off the field. Or Army will be able to to bleed the clock for 45 minutes like they did against Oklahoma. It's going to be an interesting matchup, and I'm curious to see what exactly happens. Like I mentioned, this next game is my favorite, the New Mexico Bowl. You have Utah State, who, uh, again, thank you so much to Scott Gerard for jumping on the podcast. You know, great team. Big offense, big tempo. They're very aggressive uh, blitzing. They're very aggressive forcing turnovers. I want to say that 18 takeaways this year, which is fantastic. And that's really what Dave Gibbs wanted to do at Texas Tech as well. So we'll see whether uh, whether new defensive coordinator Keith Patterson is able to coach that up in his new defense. Now, Matt Wells will be involved in the game planning of this game, but he will not actually coach the game. So he will be on the sideline. He'll be there. He'll be taking part as a fan, but he won't actually be coaching the football game. At this point, Seth Luttrell is still the head coach at North Texas, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime quite soon. But if it were to happen, you know, we could be having two interim coaches face off against each other. Um, You know, but obviously... UNT has quarterback Mason Fine, who's going to be the best player on the field in in this game. But Utah State has some good depth. They have some good quarterback play in the form of Jordan Love, the uh, 
All-Mountain West Conference second-team quarterback, only a sophomore. And and like I mentioned, Utah State takes the ball away, and they put a lot of pressure on opposing quarterbacks. I think that UNT is going to have to find a way to get the ball out quickly. They're going to have to find a way to be able to establish the run, which is something they've struggled to do this year. And on the other end, Nate Brooks is going to need to come up with some takeaways. That's been his game plan all year long. We got to see it once again against sophomore quarterback Jordan Love. It's going to be a great game. I'm very, very excited to see this one. Next up, we got the Gator Bowl. Texas A&M versus North Carolina State, as we mentioned. And North Carolina State is, you know, they're they're a good team. They're not a great team, but they do have one really great player, and that's quarterback Ryan Finley. Finley is a legitimate NFL player. He's going to be one of the first quarterbacks taken in this draft. And unfortunately for Texas A&M, their big issue has come in the secondary. <laughs> you know, so that's going to be a huge issue uh, for Texas A&M, I think, is whether Ryan Finley is going to be able to pick them apart. You know, North Carolina State went 9-3 and three on the year, but they don't, you know, it's, it's not a particularly special 9-3. and three. I mean, the ACC was pretty down this year. Uh, they play against, they lose against Clemson, they lose against Syracuse, they lose against Wake Forest. Uh, you know, their best win is what? Oh, man. Just looking up and down the schedule, their wins are James Madison, okay, Georgia State, Marshall, Virginia, Boston College, Florida State, Louisville, North Carolina, East Carolina. Okay, I, I just said every, every win on their schedule. I guess Virginia is probably the best win on their schedule. I think they have two wins over bowl teams. Maybe just one, actually. I don't know. I I don't know what to take away from this North Carolina State team because we haven't seen them against the best players on their schedule. And now we hear that wide receiver Kelvin Harmon probably won't play in this game because he's declared for the NFL draft. That's going to put a big dent into North Carolina State's pass game, of, of course. Regardless, Texas A&M's secondary is going to have a big test going against Finley. Again, like I mentioned, a future NFL signal caller it's going to be a good game, I think. And uh, taking place in Jacksonville, Florida, home of the cocktail party. Maybe get a few drinks into you before you watch this one because this should be a fun day. Finishing off with the Sugar Bowl. The Sugar Bowl, Texas versus Georgia. Texas's first appearance in a New Year's Six Bowl since 2009 when they played in the national championship game. Everybody remembers what happened in that game. I won't mention it. I won't mention it. But this is a big step to get back to a, a big-time bowl game for Texas. Obviously, we don't have the BCS Bowls anymore, but we have the New Year Six. Uh, and look, I don't think you can ever complain about playing in the Sugar Bowl. Going to New Orleans on New Year's Eve, whew, I think that that's the place to be if you want to go to a bowl game this bowl season. Because what we got, we've got Phoenix to play at Chase Stadium. We've got Houston. We've got Fort Worth. Okay, cool. <laughs> we've got New Mexico, Albuquerque. Albuquerque is supposed to be a great city. I actually haven't been as yet. We got Jacksonville, which, you know, I don't know. That's where you want to be. New Orleans, man, that's, if you're going to plan a bowl trip for this year, that's the place that you need to be. Although you also, you know, we have to see whether it happens this weekend or this weekend. But Mary Harden Baylor and the potentially earning a trip to the Division Three National Championship game for a third straight season. That could happen this weekend, and that takes place in Shenandoah in the Woodlands. So that'll be one to keep an eye on. But, but if you're going to make a bowl trip this year, the Sugar Bowl is definitely the move. You got two of the biggest programs in the history of college football: University of Texas, University of Georgia. Two up-and-coming head coaches: Kirby Smart, Tom Herman, both coaches who were assistants on national championship-winning staffs. Both coaches who want to take their programs to new heights, who want 
their programs to be the standard bearer in their respective states, which they haven't been consistently enough for the last couple decades. I don't know how I feel about it on field for Texas. Uh, I, I think that Texas is going to really struggle to establish the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. Georgia has arguably the best offensive line, it, you know, or one of the best offensive lines in, in college football. And defensively, Texas hasn't consistently been able to to every single game win the line of scrimmage, and this is going to be the best offensive line they go up against. And on the other end, uh, Texas's offensive line has showed a lot of signs, and Georgia's pretty young in the front seven after losing a whole bunch of their best players after last season. So I, I don't know what exactly is going to happen. It's going to be a good game, but I think Georgia probably is a better team than Texas, but Texas beaten a whole lot of teams this season who I also thought they were better to, uh, were better teams in Texas. So anything can happen. I mean, that's one of the things that you have to love about this game. Almost anything can happen. We'll see whether the motivation factor comes into play. Texas being in a big-time bowl game for the first time in a long time, and Georgia missing out on the college football playoff. It's going to be a great time. Can't wait for it to, to happen. And like I mentioned, we'll do more extended bowl previews in the next couple of weeks. Like I mentioned, we, we might even have uh, sort of individual shows to preview each of the bowl games. There's a lot happening right now. You know, obviously this weekend, we're going to see whether there are any national awards handed out to players from the state of Texas. Already we know that Jay Sternberger didn't win the Mackey Award, and I know that Texas A&M fans are not happy about that one. But I do think that Texas A&M punter has a great chance to win the Ray Guy Award as the best punter in college football on Friday. Uh, but I think that might be the only Texas player who's nominated for a national award. So... It's going to be interesting to see. Obviously, again, we'll also see Kyler Murray versus Tua Tagovailoa, who ends up winning the Heisman Trophy on Saturday night. Look, it's a, it's a fun time. It's the most fun time of the year in a lot of ways. Bowl season, hiring season, recruiting season, everything's all around us right now. We're about to have football for like two and a half weeks straight. I can't complain. You shouldn't either. Anyway, thank you so much to everybody for joining us. Uh, we'd like to give a quick thank you to our sponsor, North Texas Honda Dealers. North Texas Honda Dealers, they're here to help. You can find all of our work at TexasFootball.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, like us on Facebook, Dave Campbell, Texas Football. Like, uh, follow us on Twitter at DCTF. And like I mentioned, we've got the new recruiting magazine coming out in the next couple of weeks. If you haven't seen the covers yet, you'll want to check that one out. We've got Texas A&M commits and Atascacita offensive tackle Kenyon Green on the cover, one of the top-rated players in the entire state of Texas. It's a really great cover. I, I honestly don't know how we managed to make an offensive lineman look cool on the cover of a magazine, but we freaking did it. I'm excited. I'm excited. Make sure and check it out. Anyway, thank you so much as always for listening to the show, and we'll back, be back with you once again next week to discuss what the heck is going on in this crazy, crazy sport. So have a good one, and we'll talk to you guys real soon.